Christmas isn't even mentioned in the It's a Wonderful Life logline, but it's mentioned in the Die Hard logline. So go. suck on that, people. <laughs> suck on that. Die Hard, I have just proven to you, is a Christmas movie. I think the argument is dead now. We can move on. Well, I want to start off by saying Merry Christmas. And if you're still not convinced that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, trust me, my brother's got nine more points to go over that and try to convince you. Even has some points debunking uh, common arguments, uh, arguing that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. So stay tuned. 2023 has been a great year for us. We've gotten into a groove. We're putting out at least one episode a month. So if you have not listened to the rest of our episodes, we've got a little bit of a bank now, so you can binge if you'd like. Well, this was a fun episode. I'm going to get right into it. And while I get the film reel going so you can listen, I just want to tell you that we are working on 2024. So come on back after the new year. Fat Hard, the Christmas episode. (laughs) Fat Hard. I love it. Fat Hard. Well, let's get started. Let's do it. Welcome back to the Silver Screen Happy Hour. I'm Chris Wiegand, along with my brother Jerome. Hello. I have my bedroom voice today. Oh, no. Don't know. In perfect holiday fashion, I'm friggin' sick. Yeah. And actually, I'm getting over it now. It's a little bit of a cold. Are we going to lead? Is this my lead in? Is this our segue into what we're drinking today? Yeah, we might as well. Okay, I'm going Go with NyQuil. Just kidding, just <laughs> kidding, just kidding. So, aside from green being mucus, what color would you associate with Christmas? Red. Yes, look what we're wearing, right? For yeah. those of you that can't see us, we're actually decked out in Christmas outfits yeah. today. I'm wearing my Dwight from The Office yeah. Christmas sweater, and he's got a big red nose, and the caption says, with your nose, so Dwight. <laughs> but anyway, so I have here... A very nice bottle. Nice. It's called Red Breast. Oh, nice. It's an Irish whiskey, right? Because John McClane is Irish. So, oh, we haven't even talked about the movies yet. Duh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we will in a second. So anyway, Red Breast Single Pot Still Irish Whiskey, age 12 years. This will be my NyQuil today. <laughs> and I will be backing it up with some of my usual lightsabers. You know that. I would not let the folks over at Anheuser-Busch down. I would never let you down. You know that my backups are uh, Mick Ultra Tall's. Here we go. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Oof. Here's to feeling good all the time. <laughs> Seinfeld Kramer reference. I think I spilled some of it on myself. Oh, no. Now I'm going to smell like red breast. Well, it's not a Christmas party until someone spills something. It's not a Christmas party until you spill whiskey all over yourself. (laughs) Great. I have to explain that to my wife. All right. Uh, Your turn. My turn. So I decided it's a Christmas episode. So I was in uh, Sam's Club the other day Mm. and saw this. Sorry, the noise. I didn't know how to keep this cold up in the attic where I'm recording. And uh, so I made another burrito out of the drink, except this time it's eggnog. Since it's Christmas, I saw this Southern Comfort eggnog at Sam's Club, and I thought, well, Southern Comfort, I don't like Southern Comfort, so I'm not putting Southern Comfort in it. There's no Southern Comfort in this, but I will be adding a whiskey of my own. So let me pour a little bit of the Southern Comfort eggnog into my cup. Oh boy, I'm going to make a mess. 
I don't want to do what I did last time. He's going to pour out his white, creamy juices. Let's see if I can do this without spilling. For those of you that can't see, he's wrapped ice packets around it. <laughs> like, a, like it sprained like, its ankle. Like, yeah, like it fell off the roof, and, and he just duct-taped ice packets around it to keep it from swelling. Yeah. So I got right. that, and then I, I didn't even hear you pour. Well, hear it's a... eggnog. It doesn't make a lot. Of, it's it's really smooth. I and want to creamy. hear that thick, heavy. Hold on, you can have me here. You should get this. <laughs> God, that's <laughs> creepy. Slurp, slurpy, very, very creepy. I'm not a big eggnog person, but I like a sweet drink once in a while. That's what so. To mix to mix the in the eggnog, I thought this is a. A hard, hardcore type, kind of a, a hard edge kind of a Christmas, since we're doing the movies that we're doing, and I just went to see Metallica 70, uh, 72 seasons tour in Detroit, and a couple days after the concerts, I went to uh, a liquor store and found their blackened limited edition 72 seasons whiskey on a previous podcast i did try uh, blackened whiskey with uh, it was the sound of metal yeah and sound of a lesser god that was the name of our episode and yeah. uh, i enjoyed the whiskey so here we go there we go oh yeah i'm gonna pour here let me get closer to the microphone gluck, 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 gluck. here we go That's a shot and a half. Oof. Oh my god, that sounded so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I. If any, if anyone's listening to this while they're driving, they're like, yeah. I gotta find a bar. I gotta yeah. find a bar now. <laughs> I gotta turn off the Put road. That over there. Mix that up a little bit. Try a little swig. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. Merry Christmas. All right. Cheers. Glasses up. Cheers. Cheers to the Christmas special, and Merry Christmas, everybody. Been looking forward to this Ooh. one. So we kicked oh, yeah. around some other Christmas movies, and, you know, we were like, you know, we enjoyed Home Alone and different movies when we were younger. But, I don't know, I was like, I, I would love to do Die Hard. So we decided we're going with Die Hard and movie not too many people have heard about for probably good reason. Yes. <laughs> Very, called very good Fat reasons. Man. That came out in 2020. Jer- Jerome, when did Die Hard come out? So Die Hard is 1988. My first memory of Die Hard was Mom rented it from Skip's video. Oh, God. I remember Skip's. Yeah. In Centerline, Michigan. What was that? Was that 10 Mile Road? It was on yeah, 10 Mile? Yeah, that was on 10 yeah, Mile, okay. yeah. So Skip's Skip's Liquor, Skip's Video Store was a convenience store. They had a video store in the back, and it was uh, on 10 Mile Road in Centerline, Michigan. And she brought it home one night and on Friday night or whatever, and we watched it. And those were the nights, those were the days when Dad used to play hockey on Fridays. Oh, yeah. Right? So he'd be gone. And then we would just, you know, we'd watch movies. And I can't remember if, if I don't think Amy was there. I don't know where Amy was. I don't know where you were either. <laughs> yeah, that's with you. I don't know where either of my siblings were. But Mom and I watched Die Hard yeah. from Skip's video. Now, this was 1988. It must have been maybe Christmas time because, and we'll get to this later, but Die Hard was actually released in July of 1988. 
And by the time it hit video, it had to have been around Christmas time. Oh, uh, yeah, makes sense. Um, and Good time for a Christmas rental. Yeah, good, good time for a Christmas rental, exactly. So, because Dad was playing hockey, and he always played that in the wintertime. So, yeah. I was, geez, what was that then? 88, I was 13, mm. 13 years old. A little young for an R-rated film, but there wasn't too much, I mean, aside from violence and language, <laughs> you know, that was pretty much it, and... You know, that's who cares about that when you're 13? You're already getting ready to get into high school, so who cares? What about you? What was your first experience with Die Hard? You know, I don't remember because <laughs> I might have been in. We, we talked about this on The Sound of Metal in that episode as well, but I abused alcohol in high school. And so, 1988, around this time, I might, that's probably where I was. I might have been in uh, Maple Grove. <laughs> Oh, like actually there? Yeah, like actually there. there. I got out. I got out in November, so really? I was there. Of '88. Yeah, I, I was there for like four, five weeks, I think. So yeah, wow. confessing the world here. But yeah, I, and, and honestly, we talked about this on that episode. Um, I look back fondly on all the years uh, that I spent clean, and um, thankfully, I do not have a problem. Um, and uh, I abused it certainly in high school. And uh, you explained it a lot. Yeah. More detail. In that. I did. I, so I, if I you would want, recommend you guys, yeah, to go back and listen to that. Go back episode. and listen to that. But that's probably where I was when you were because watching it for the first time. <laughs> I don't remember the first time I saw it because life got a little nuts after that. But I definitely yeah. loved it when I saw it, and I've seen it a million times. So. Yeah, absolutely. And we're pairing it today with the 2020 masterpiece. <laughs> Masterpiece of shit, <laughs> Fat Man. Um, I'm just kidding, Mel. This. I'm just kidding, Mel. It's not a piece of shit. It mostly is, but <laughs> and, and we'll go over it. This is not exactly like when we did Jaws versus Jaws four. If you, if any of you haven't seen our YouTube yeah. video, it's about two and a it, half hours. It long. doesn't sink to that level. Yeah, <laughs> Fat Man is not on the level of Jaws four. No, but if there was a Jaws five, then Fat Man might be. Right however, around. however, I I I do, and I'm gonna say this probably a lot before the end of the podcast, but I highly recommend you have some friends over. You know, make it a drinking game or something. But yes, like we talked about in uh, the Jaws episode, but yeah. it's. It's a fun movie to watch. Uh, it, it if you're is. with other I, people, I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it. But let's look, let's get into it. Yeah, like we're gonna do Fat Man first. Obviously, we want to save Die Hard for the end. But but just a couple of notes on Fat Man before we get in. My issues with Fat Man, and we had I've had these whenever we do these podcasts. There's movies that I love, but the scripts are a mess. You know, we there's been movies where we like like Norma Ray. Remember, we're like, man, the whole first half of Norma Ray sucked. Like it does, it does slow. It didn't get moving. The second half was so much better. Overall, it's a good movie, right? This this is kind of one of those things where Fat Man is a fun movie to watch. It is fun. It had a fun concept. It's ridiculous. Um, it's a it's ridiculous, it's a ridiculous movie. concept. <laughs> the elves to me stole the show. I I fucking love the elves in the North Pole. They steal the show. But but. The script, obviously, I feel is a mess, and we're going to talk yeah. about why. So let's dig right into Fat Man, if you haven't seen it. Mel Gibson plays, of course, Chris Kringle, the actual Santa Claus. So this film was written and directed by Esham and Ian Nelms, their brothers. I, I believe they're brothers. I'm assuming they're brothers. So I'm going to start with the logline. And remember, why is the logline important? Because the logline is your premise. It's the movie. It's the reason you came to the movie, right? It's the reason why you went to go see it. 
it's basically your act two because act one is all set up and then you have the thing that drives the character into act two and act two is your log line that's what the story is about and that's going to be important because listen to this log line a rowdy unorthodox santa claus is fighting to save his declining business meanwhile Billy, a neglected and precocious 12-year-old, hires a hitman to kill Santa after receiving a lump of coal in his stocking. So right off the bat, we have a problem. Now, I get that the writers of Fat Man did not write this logline, but you have two stories going on already in the logline alone. Yeah. And I think whoever writes loglines for stuff like IMDb or the back of a DVD or whatever, they have to determine what the damn movie's about right and even they obviously had trouble because they gave me two stories in one log line and the reason why they have trouble i can't tell you what the story is i don't know if it's one or the other because i can't even tell you who the damn main character is and i'll tell you why because there's no arcs there's no structure to it it's just they sort basically of like... they basically wanted to just have a story where uh, a little kid is pissed off at Santa and he hires an assassin to kill him and that, that's fine that's, if that's, that's your it. story yeah that's if that's just the story that's it okay <laughs> all right all right all right so here we go the beats if anybody listened to our podcast before, the beats. These are the points that you need to hit when you're writing your story. And, it, you know, we used to harp on when it happened, like the minute mark. Right. I still kind of think that's important for pacing reasons. It's fun to, to look at. I laid off it a little bit. As long as you hit the beats in order, right. everything should work fine. Right. All right. Opening image, usually a mirror flip of your closing image. But the opening image here is ice being scraped off a windshield. A little, maybe subtle, subtlety there. Theme stated. I can't really put my finger on one. Did you? Could you really no. pick out a theme stated? So, and I this is what I wrote down in my notes. Mostly it's because I don't know whose story this is. All right? If it's Santa, the closest thing we have to a theme is when Mrs. Claus says, that, by the way, he's outside practicing, like shooting his gun. He's mm. firing off his gun. <laughs> and Mrs. Claus says to Fat Man, you have fun shooting in the trash. That's what she says to him. That's not really a theme. To me, it's kind of a setup and payoff, right? Because of the climax of the movie. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of like a setup. A you have foreshadow. Yeah, a little foreshadowing. You have fun shooting the trash. But that's not really a theme. Mm -hmm. That doesn't, at least that doesn't carry throughout the film. If he is the lead and he's, and he's clearly, like if you watch the film, he's pining for a world that has sort of changed on, on his watch. And he's not happy with, right? The world is different now. Kids don't earn their presence. There's no love in the world anymore. It's all crap. And I get it. And that would have been a cool story too, right? A Santa sort of like trying to deal with how the world has changed. You know, so they're trying and to that's tell a, And that's a theme ones. you've seen in kind of some other Santa movies, like Buddy the Elf Santa. He was like, you couldn't rely on Christmas spirit anymore, so they had to have the rocket on the sleigh. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. But and, and they didn't really go anywhere with that this idea, though. <laughs> right. And if that was the story, <laughs> right. Mrs. Claus would have served as a perfect sort of like B story. But mm. obviously she's introduced way too early. She's introduced in like the second scene instead of where she would come in later if she was the B story, right? A great casting, by the way, on Mrs. Claus. Marion yeah. Jean-Baptiste, who <laughs> I've known since Secrets and Lies was the first movie I ever saw, and that was like 96. 
She's popped up in movies every now and again since then. I love her. I think she's great. And a perfect fit for Mrs. Claus. Yeah. Because it catches you off guard. Like, I think even Mel said in an interview, he's like, a British black woman as yeah. Mrs. Claus. I, he's lo- like, I, we, I thought it was great, too. Yeah, right? he's like, we couldn't have picked a better person. <laughs> Pretty funny. It was a great casting choice. And she's great. She really does serve as sort of the B story throughout the film. And I, I appreciated like her personality and presence that that she brought to the to the movie compared to Mel's to, to right. compare, compared to the fat man. Yeah, because she brings the heart. He's yeah. the anger, right? He is the world's yeah. anger and angst, and she's the world's love, right? So again, if you were to cut out all the crap about the kid and just made that the crux of the story, where he needs to learn and she has to teach him yeah. how to accept the world as it is and stop being such a grumpy pants. Like, that <laughs> that could have been the story. Yeah. Right? We might have a, f- a, a fat man <laughs> franchise. Yes. So, okay, so this is me trying to figure out who the main character is. If the main character is Billy, and it could be, because it's kind of set up, if you look at the log line, the kid hires a hitman to kill Santa. So is he the lead? If he is the lead... Because the first act, mind you, is mostly about his setup and development. Then, here's a problem, and we saw this in Jaws 4. Then the supposed main character disappears. He largely disappears as the story shifts into the hitman, right? He, he checks in a couple of times just for updates. How's it going? Have you found him yet? But the whole first act is about this kid, and then he just, like, we forget him. Yeah. Like, he's not even part of the story anymore. I even threw in here on the third one. What if the main character is Skinny? That's the name of the hitman, by the way. Skinny. Yeah, because he had a story arc, too. <laughs> right. I said, if so, there is some backstory to show the motivation, but certainly unfulfilling resolution. Right? <laughs> right. Like, if, if he is built up as one of the main characters, his resolution is shit. Yeah. He doesn't get any payoff for his motivation. Uh, tell the audience who Skinny is in this, in this film. Okay, so Skinny is the hitman that was hired by Billy. Billy's the 12-year-old. Skinny is uh, played by Walt Goggins. Those of you that are fans of Justified or The Shield would know him. Great actor. I love him. And he, by the way, aside from the elves, he also steals the show because he, he's got some great moments in this movie, some funny moments. And that's why I kept battling with, what if this was Skinny's story? This would be cool if it was Skinny's story, mm-hmm. that he got hired to kill Santa, and on his journey to go kill Santa, he realizes the pain in his childhood. Yeah, right? he's redeemed somehow, right? Right, and then he gets redemption somehow, and he becomes a better person. None of that shit happens. It's got great setup, <laughs> and then his resolution is absolute garbage. And it's and it's almost sad because, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So I wrote on here, right at theme stated, I wrote, so right off the bat, we have problems with who's the lead and what's the theme. Right. All right. Inciting incident, which is normally the catalyst. The government presents itself to Santa for a deal to make military weapons. But if Billy's the lead, then it would be when he gets coal in his stocking. Right. That would be the catalyst. Yeah. So we have two catalysts because we have two stories going on right now. But which, based on the log line, suggests Billy is the lead. So the real catalyst would be he finds coal in his stocking. Now, why did he get coal in his stocking? They spend an awful lot of time in Act 1 on showing how spoiled and bitchy he is and that he will torture a classmate in order to win a science fair project. Not just him, but he has... 
the hitman torture a classmate. Oh, yeah, Skinny's on his payroll. He doesn't like, just these hire are, kill These Santa. are felony offenses, like, for lots of time. That Absolutely. <laughs> and, it didn't make and, sense. And that's his character <laughs> setup, right? They spend a lot of time in Act 1 with that. Yeah. So that by the time you get to his catalyst, his inciting incident where he finds coal in his stocking, he gets pissed off and he wants to hire Skinny to kill Santa, right? Because that's what this kid has learned his whole life is whenever I have a problem, I'll just hire a, a, a hitman or a, a Mr. Fix-It, you know? What's the guy from- uh, Mike fucking... Trout. <laughs> yeah, Mike Trout. I was actually thinking Pulp Fiction, yeah. the character, right? The fixer, the wolf. You know, that's all Billy's got to do is hire the wolf, you yeah, know, and, right. and fix his problems. <laughs> so, yeah. So, all right. So, hang on. Let me. T- I, I need. I need. I need another sip of scotch here for breaking into Act Two. <laughs> all right. So, Act Two. We break into Act Two. Billy hires Skinny to kill Santa. Meanwhile, in perfect confusion on whose story this is, Santa decides to take the government job. So now, in two stories being told at once. And by the way, and here's another problem with this. <laughs> Santa doesn't even know that Billy has hired a hitman to kill him right. until the climax of the movie. Yeah. He's completely oblivious to what's going on. Yeah. So it's one thing if you were like, well, it's cool that there's two stories. Shit, you no, know, Magnolia's like, you know, eight stories going on at once and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but there's usually some sort of interweaving connection. <laughs> yeah, right. Like Santa's story has got literally nothing to do with Billy <laughs> at all in his story at all, except for the fact that he exists. Okay. I write in here. Here's the biggest problem in poorly written scripts. Act one setup takes so long that by the time we get to the break into two, a scene or two later, you're already at the midpoint scene, mm. right? And we and I think we mentioned that before, that your midpoint scene comes in the middle of the film. That's why you can't push that. Again, Norma Ray had this problem. You can't push your your break into two, which is your basically your act two start point, your log line starting point. You can't push that too late. If you spend your entire act one on setup, it becomes not just act one, the first half of the film right? on setup. And then you get to the inciting incident, and then like a scene or two later, you're already at the midpoint scene, and your story has to change direction again. Remember, the midpoint scene is not just clock. It's not just, oh, it's a two-hour film, and it came at the one-hour point. It's an actual story shift. There is something that happens at the midpoint to change the direction of the characters. Right, right. So... Midpoint scene. Santa's offered a long-time gig to work with the government. So here's what happened. So Santa accepted this one-time deal. He made money on it. He got excited because, you know, Santa needs money. And because of it, he thinks, okay, well, we'll do this long-term. All that happens between the first turning point and the midpoint. Not very exciting. So who is it? Is it Santa's story or is it fucking Billy's story? Right, right. I, I, I did put, though, that does sound like Santa achieved his tangible goal. If Santa is the lead, that was his tangible goal, right? He needs money. He wants money. He needs money to keep the operation going. Yeah. And he, he, he achieves that at the midpoint scene. We always say that you should get your tangible goal at the midpoint scene. Spiritual goal is something you're going to learn later. Right, right. But he does get his tangible. If he's the lead, he got his tangible goal at the midpoint scene. <laughs> And I think it's right around this point that I have a quote from my wife because I made her sit there and watch this with me. (laughs) And the quote from Jesse, she says, this movie is making me hate the fact that people can make movies. (laughs) That's, by the way, that might be the greatest line of criticism I might have ever heard. I never even heard Siskel and Ebert say something that great. Like that, when you text that to me, I was like, that... 
That should go on some people's tombstone, man. That's like, <laughs> that is like a great line of criticism. Um, and I'll point out something else that when you're done here, because she pointed out a mistake, a flaw that she spotted in this movie. So wait, in this one, I thought you said it was in Die Hard. No, no. Nope, I'm sorry, I was wrong. We, yeah, before we started recording, we were talking, and I think I mistakenly said Die Hard. It was oh, in this so it movie. is in Fat Man? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, well, then that makes it okay. When you told me there was a goof in Die yeah, Hard, I was like, no, I'm going to fight up. somebody. Nope, okay. it's, it's in this movie. So at the midpoint scene, if Billy's the lead, what's his midpoint scene? What's his tangible goal? We don't know. You know why? Because he's missing. He's MIA now. <laughs> we don't see Billy again other than checking in with uh, Skinny. To find out updates, like, have you found him yet, blah, blah, blah. Other than that, we don't see Billy again until near the end of the film. So all that setup in Act 1 was for what? Right. For nothing. <laughs> shit. Garbage. All right. Second half of the film, everything goes to shit. Bad guys closing in. Approximately an hour and five minutes into the film, Billy makes an appearance again. One hour and five minutes in, we see Billy again after not seeing him since basically the turning point. The first turning point. This is the first time we've seen him since Breaking the Two. He tells Skinny he wants a souvenir. That's it. He just called Skinny to say he wants a souvenir of the killing after he kills Santa. <laughs> That's all we get from Billy. Right. And then he disappears what again What purpose for a while. did that have to propel the story forward? <laughs> Honestly, when I saw it, I was like, they're just doing this so that we, for- we don't forget that Billy exists. Right. <laughs> right? Because otherwise, why the fuck would we even remember this kid? Yeah. He's disappeared. All is lost. Now, this is where everything goes to shit, absolute shit. In any good film, this is where you really feel that all the hope is lost and you don't know how you're going to achieve your goals, your spiritual goals. Skinny discovers where the fat man is. And I put, but then who's the lead? Is Skinny the lead now? There is no all is lost for Billy since he's still not around yet. Other than that one check-in, we don't see him again. So he doesn't have an all is lost. And if the all is lost is the worst possible moment, it could be that the assassin finds him. But Santa doesn't know the assassin's looking for him. So that can't be Santa's all is lost. Right? Like, again, if he had known, then they could be like, we discovered that Skinny knows where we are. Like, that could be, Yeah. oh my God. Yeah, he's got to know that. Right. Like, now we have to be on alert. We have to get the elves all machine guns, and we have to, you know, whatever. None like, of you that. could have a, yeah, but none of that shit happens. None of that. We don't even know. Santa doesn't even know Skinny's looking for him. So, there is really no all is lost. Dark Knight of the Soul is supposed to come right after the all is lost, where your main character has lost everything and now has to figure out how to win. Obviously, if we didn't have an all is lost, we're not going to have a Dark Knight of the Soul. I even put this Fat Man is unaware of the bad things that's about to happen. Odd for someone who sees everything, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that little plot point. Everybody he sees in the movie, he's like, hey, Denise, how are the kids? And Denise would be like, who the fuck is this guy and how does he know I have kids? Because he's Santa, so he sees everything. Can he see that Skinny is coming to kill him? No, he doesn't see any of that. Yeah. All right. So I put, we have no dark night of the soul. Break into three. Skinny reaches the compound. This is the best part I can amount to say that this is the third act now, right? is that Skinny gets to the compound, loaded up with his guns, and he's ready to take out Santa Claus. I'm assuming this is now the third act. There is no storyline to push that. I'm just guessing based on time. It's like the last half yeah, hour we're of the movie. We're running out of so, time. We gotta, yeah, so I'm be. assuming it's the third act now. All right, what do we talk about? The third act always has what? Five-point finale. Here we go. Point number one, assembling the team. 
or gathering the team. Skinny takes out the guards and enters the compound. So he doesn't really gather the team. He's already there, but he just kills guards to get in. Okay, fine. Execution of the plan. Skinny kills many elves and people and blows up the workshop. <laughs> Hightower surprise. Wait. I've, I'm telling you this as if Skinny's the lead, by the way. So In this version, <laughs> right. Skinny's back to being the lead. What What is Fat Man doing at this time, by the way, since you asked? Nothing. Like, he's not... <laughs> like, when the workshop blows up, that's when they discover there's an intruder in the compound. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, wait. So, is this... Santa's high tower surprise? Or is this Skinny's high tower surprise? I don't know. I don't know who the lead is. Okay. Dig down deep. Let's assume the mano a mano face off between Fat Man and Skinny is the dig down deep for both, right? Because they do have a moment. And again, what's so frustrating about that scene is it might be the best written scene of the movie, but because it had shit for setup and shit for payoff, right. it falls flat. Yeah. He knows who he is when he sees him. He right. calls him by his name. Yep. And Walt Goggins does give this great, I'm here to kill you, fat man! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> great moment. But then there's this really heartfelt moment where he's like, you know, even even there's there's limits to even what I can do. And I can't bring your parents, or I couldn't bring your parents back. Man, what a loaded yeah. line. You know, you get this idea yeah. that when Walt Goggins was a child, when Skinny was a child, he'd lost his parents. Yeah. And if it, and he if, asked Santa for new parents or yeah. to bring his parents back. And if this was his arc, as his if he was the lead and his story is his redemption arc, it would have been a perfect oh lead in. Oh my god. To that. Yeah. That's why I was so pissed. I actually paused it to go grab another beer when I was watching it. <laughs> And I was angrily getting the beer out of the fridge and angrily opening it. I'm like, man, they fucking had a chance. Yeah. They had a chance. That's a great moment. Like I said, probably the best written moment of the movie. Right. And it falls so flat because it has zero resolution after that. Yeah. I'm getting angry right now just retelling it. <laughs> Sip your whiskey. Yeah. Okay. So, surprise to nobody, execution of the new plan, Skinny kills Fat Man, and then he's killed by Mrs. Claus. Now, I know what you're saying. He kills Santa Claus. Don't worry, he's not really dead. You know, Santa can't be killed that easily. So, I, I wrote here, wait, maybe Mrs. Claus was the lead this whole time. <laughs> and the resolution is her resolution. Because she's the one that kills Skinny. In a kitchen with very little fanfare, very little hoop, hoopla or hype or excitement. All she says is, I'm sorry for this or something like that. Like, I'm sorry. And then she kills him. <laughs> so, he has no redemption. The fact that his parents died when he was a child, he doesn't earn that redemption back. Mm -hmm. There's no regret. He doesn't earn the regret, you know? Like, oh, I'm going to pull probably a bad example here. Dogma, which was a Kevin Smith movie. One the Catholics very much said was sacrilegious of a movie because they poke a lot of fun at religion. And in the movie, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck play, play fallen angels that want to pretty much destroy the universe, right? And when they get to the end... And they're about to do it. They're about to open the doors of the church, and that's going to allow all the bad shit to happen, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm, not, I'm just paraphrasing at this point. God comes out. Of course, God's played by Alanis Morissette for anyone that's seen the movie. But the second he sees her, Matt Damon's character, or no, it's Ben Affleck's character, he starts crying. And he falls to his knees, and he's like, I'm sorry. Like, he was filled with rage the whole movie, but when he sees God face to face, 
he crumbles. Mm. This could have had a perfect moment like that where he's there to kill Santa and he's killing elves and he's killing the military guys and he's blowing up the workshop. But when he gets face to face with Santa, could have been a great heartfelt moment about, I asked you to bring my parents back. Right. And you couldn't even do that for me. You know? Like, they, man, they had so much opportunity <laughs> and they fucking blew it and I'm mad now. <laughs> but so you get my point. Like, there was so much there that could have happened that didn't. Instead, he dies in a kitchen with no redemption, no follow-up. And then resolution, surprise to nobody, Santa isn't dead. He just has a big hole where his eye used to be. And then he goes, and he goes to yell at Billy. And that's the first time now we've seen Billy in a while, right? He, where he's back to being the lead again, I guess. Right. He and Mrs. Claus kind of mend their feelings about the cruel world, which, by the way, hasn't changed and he hasn't saved. So if Santa's storyline was in regards to how the world has changed. Not much has changed there either, other than he's in a better mood now, I right. guess, because he's, he's under government contract, so he has money now. I, I don't know. <laughs> but that was his tangible goal. He achieves that at the midpoint scene. So by Mrs. Claus killing the hitman that came to kill him somehow gives him this new lease on life, I don't know, because he couldn't have been killed anyway. Right. The whole movie, they talk about how people shoot at him on Christmas Eve whenever he goes out. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes he comes home with new bullet holes. <laughs> I like when he yelled at him, you think you're the first or something like that? Yeah. You're <laughs> Again, those are elements that could have made up for a great storyline right. about Santa's always getting shot at because people don't know he's really Santa. <laughs> right. So, you know, he managed to scare one little prick into submission <laughs> while killing an assassin actually... Again, the frustrating part is the assassin had the most depth in the movie, and he's the most in need of a hug. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Right. And what do they do? They kill him in their kitchen. (laughs) So I don't know any spiritual goal that was achieved at all. So, yeah, I mean, so there's no no resolution. There, There really, nobody has achieved any sort of a spiritual goal. That's the, that's the, the shitty part of it. Um, the closing image, which is the, Opposite of the opening image, there's kind of one there. The opening image was scraping ice off of a windshield. The closing image, they're rebuilding the workshop. So scraping off, building up, kind of opposites, which is kind of cool. But again, there's no real storyline finish. Just that they have to rebuild the workshop and they're going to continue being under government contract. Pretty much nothing that happened in the movie really mattered. It didn't really change anyone's life except, I guess, kind of Billy's. Because he Santa came and told him to stop being such a prick basically. Right. Right. And he says, I'm keeping my eye on you. Right. And he pulls up the eye patch and shows that he only has Actually, one eye left. I quoted that the fat man's got his eye on you, kid. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like supposed to be the big, the yeah. big hit at the end of the movie. Like, like, oh Ooh. man. Yeah. Okay. So, so it was a groaner. It was such a groaner. And yeah, it actually it made you angry. Mm-hmm. You know, the screenwriter and you was just freaking out. So and Anyways. again, I don't get angry because it was poorly written. When I get angry, it's, and this has happened in other films as well, I get angry when I see that there was potential and they dropped the fucking ball. Yeah, That's right. what I get angry about, right? I don't get angry that the Lions didn't get a first down. I'll get angry if they ran for the first down and then fumbled. Right. That's, that's what happened here. They got the first down and fumbled the fucking ball. Like, that's what I get pissed off about. Because there was so much potential with this. Now, all that shit aside, there is some fun to this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Skinny, I think, 
had the best change at all, somewhat. He didn't, again, there was no resolution, mm-hmm. but he had the kind of, he had the most at stake, sort of, like his personal demons mm-hmm. with Santa. He had the best opportunity for growth, more than Billy, I think. A hitman never cares for anything, right? He's got no affection for life. That's why they're a hitman. And because of Santa's neglect, he's going on this journey. It, it, it can help him grow and care for something. So that whole subplot about the hamster, that could have been, that would have been better served if that came near the end of the film. Hmm. And he kind of learned an appreciation for living things, right? Right, right. But somehow they kind of shoehorn this in throughout the whole film. He's got this running gag, sort of this running story, that he loves his hamster. I don't know why. <laughs> but <Right. laughs> but just, he does care for something. Yeah. Right? But, yeah, they so, just didn't tie it all together. I mean, it was just right. a mess. So, so that's what I'm saying. There's no growth there because he already does care for something. Yeah. His hamster. Well, like I said at the beginning, it, if you're not going to watch this for... I guess for the quality of the screenplay and the and the script and everything, watch it for the the humor of like really how bad it is and have some friends over. And this is something I, I told I told you before we started recording. I have an audio I'd like to play. Can I play that now? Yes, go for it. My daughter Lindsay and her husband Ben watched this movie. I think they were on an airplane when they watched it. And because they maybe because they're a captive audience and they couldn't yell at the at the TV and they actually enjoyed it. And anyways, I'm going to let them share their thoughts on Fat Man. So the interesting thing about watching Fat Man for the first time was that I walked into it with absolutely no context and was very confused. But I have to say, I think watching a Christmas movie that has a ton of violence has become one of our new holiday traditions. It definitely has become a holiday tradition. And first time I watched Fat Man, it felt like if Santa Claus and John McClane had a baby, (laughs) that would be Fat Man. Exactly. (laughs) So I don't know about that because John McClane had some stinker movies too, I would say. but I am not adding Fat Man to my holiday tradition. I can guarantee but, you that but, right but now. They are, the, I think what they're saying is they added violent Christmas movies to their holiday tradition. And there are a couple now, at least, I know. So, anyways, I thought it was funny when they sent that to me. But, yeah, so, it, you know, if you, want, if, you, if you want a movie that is, it might destroy a few brain cells, but, you know, if you're just looking at a movie to throw popcorn at the TV and yell at it, this is definitely your movie. Yeah. So, so I'm not going to harp anymore about arc and character arcs. We know yeah. that they're shit in this movie. But I'll give you some funny parts. There is some really comedy. There's some real comedy in this movie. Excuse me. So <laughs> at one moment, the military guys are trying to move this big-ass truck, right? It's stuck in the snow. And Santa comes up and lifts it with one arm. <laughs> and to try to explain that when they're all standing there in awe, he just looks at him and goes, steroids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. And then, so the elves, to me, like I said earlier, the elves steal the show. The elves are, provide some of the best humor. When they're talking about their diet and the sleep, sleep schedule, for example. Right. <laughs> talking about all the carbs and sugar they eat. And he's talking to the military guy who's like, well, you guys need eight hours of sleep a night. And, and the elf seven, that's the leader, elf seven. He goes, every elf, this is a quote. 
Every elf takes a 20-minute nap every eight hours, keeps our bodies fresh, and allows us to work on a 24-hour rotation. <laughs> and then at, at one point, Santa's talking to, to elf number seven, and he says they're, they're, they're happy how things are going, right? They're, they're building all the shit for the military. And Santa says, when have you ever seen it go perfect? And elf seven goes, 1910 was close. <laughs> random obscure line like right kind of gives you an idea how many centuries you know how long they've been doing this how many years has santa been around right but it was just funny 1910 was close like they almost had a perfect christmas in 1910 um the military guy asks elf seven why he wasn't promoted to elf one (laughs) and he gets offended elf seven's like we don't reissue numbers it would be unethical and disrespectful. Yeah. And <laughs> he, gained, he, said, he gained the military guy's respect when he said that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah because that. the military yeah. guy, yeah, the military guy's like, I can respect that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> because he even says, he goes, what happened to elves one through six? And they have all this look on their face like, oh, we don't talk about that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Skinny is particularly, my, probably my favorite, most enjoyable character other than Elf Seven, mm-hmm. except for the fact he has no payoff at the end. But when he's sparring, they show him sparring, like MMA sparring with an opponent yeah. at the gym, and he breaks this guy's arm. Oh, yeah, that was brutal. I was like, oh, and, God. And when everybody runs to the guy's aid, he gets up, and he's almost like announcing it like he's happy. He's like, I broke his arm. I broke his arm. I broke his arm. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, let, he's letting everyone know that he did it. Later, like he said, when he says, I'm here for the fat man, and the guy asks, who? And he goes, Santa Claus, motherfucker. <laughs> laughed out loud when that happened <laughs> so yeah so Walt Goggins provides a lot of the humor Elf 7 provides a lot of the humor the only one that provided virtually no fun parts was Billy yeah and and in some cases uh, fat the fat man himself I mean he's got a couple of funny lines like I said the steroids line was pretty funny but again there's so much there that they could have done yeah. It's almost like there was three different stories and they didn't know which one they wanted to tell. So they tried to rush all three of them into one mishmash pot of shit. And <laughs> and none of them, virtually none of them have a payoff. Right. Like there's virtually no resolution other than the only resolution I can see comes halfway through the film. And that's the fat man gets the government contract. So now he's government funded for the rest of his life. Yeah. Like up until then they were trying to earn money, you know. Government funded um, to make weapons. Yeah, to make weapons. <laughs> Throughout the year, 11 months out of the year, and then, of course, the 12th month, they'll make Christmas gifts. And oh, send them out. So, all right, I have a little bit of trivia. I have just a couple things of trivia. I don't have a lot. I got, one, I got one piece of trivia. Okay, so the character of Billy, played by Chance Hertzfeld, mm-hmm. Hertzfield. Do you know why he was cast? No idea. The filmmakers cast him because he looks like Ben Shapiro. Ah, he does. He looks like a baby Ben Shapiro. <laughs> That's why they cast him. I'm well, like, why? <laughs> What's that matter? They they wanted a Jewish kid. I don't. Get I don't. It. I don't know what they were going at. Like, unless they're like staunch liberals, and this was like some sort of an attack on Ben Shapiro. I don't know. Or they're staunch right wingers. Yeah, I and mean, they love Mel, ben I think Shapiro. Mel's, I think Mel leans pretty right. Maybe that's yeah. The case. So so I don't know. Right, but it's just funny. Mel Gibson. Here's my my second and last piece of trivia for this movie. Mel Gibson is the eighth Academy Award winner to play Santa. Can you name any? Of the previous seven. Billy Bob Thornton. 
Billy Bob Thornton played Santa in, well, that's correct, although he doesn't ever play the real Santa. He just plays well, Santa in Bad Santa. I saw him in the Santa suit. In Bad Santa too, <laughs> yeah. right. So he so he plays Santa twice. Yeah. Well, a, a, I said a fake Santa, but he still plays Santa. Who Billy else? Bob Thornton, correct answer. Yes, uh, he is one of- How about Ed Eisner? Know, Did he ever win Academy Award? No. Uh, you know one of them very, very, is probably one of the biggest names in acting. Just just tell me. I don't know. There's Tom some... Hanks. Oh. Tom, Tom Hanks played Santa in the Polar Express. Oh, right. Okay. Richard Attenborough, famously the director of Gandhi and was in Jurassic Park as, uh, uh, oh, what's the old man's name in Jurassic Park? Oh. oh my God. I'm drawing a blank. I don't know you his know, name. Uh, I know who you're talking oh about. Oh, my God. Oh, that's going to piss me off. Anyway, Hammond. My God, that was going to kill me. He plays John Hammond in Jurassic Park. Anyway, he played Santa in Miracle on 34th Street. Right. Oh, yeah. That, that, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a few other names you might not know. I never put that together. Huh. The 1947 Miracle on 34th Street, Santa was played by Edwin, Edmund Gwen, who is did, an Academy Award winner. Sorry. Huh. And then in the 1955 Miracle on 34th Street, it's funny, they make this, they remake this movie as much as A Star is Born, or right. what was the other one we did? Oh, All Quiet on the All Western Quiet, Front, yeah. right? Yeah. So Miracle on 34th Street, remade in 1955, Thomas Mitchell, Oscar winner, played Santa. Art Carney, who's an Oscar winner, played Santa three times in three different movies. Of course, we already mentioned Richard Attenborough and Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Hanks. And the last one to do it, the seventh one before Mel Gibson, is Jim Broadbent, who's an Oscar winner. He played Santa twice in two different movies, Arthur Christmas in 2011 and 2014's Get Santa. So, a couple interesting things there. Yeah. So the only trivia I have, my wife pointed out that Mrs. Kringle was crocheting, not knitting. They actually said she was knitting in this movie, and Jesse was quick to point out, ah, that's a mistake. She's not knitting. That's crocheting. <laughs> and anyone that crochets would know the difference. <laughs> right. Okay, I'm going to challenge that one a little bit. I don't know. Because your average person who doesn't know that would could still call it knitting. Well, I mean, no. Right? Like, but... if I saw somebody crocheting, I might be like, hey, that person's knitting over But there. you'd be wrong. Right. But <laughs> I, it just means I don't know the difference. Right. Well, I know that it's same as like if someone calls the gun the raw a gun the wrong name, you know, and that, right, would, but that again, would be a flaw. It, it would only be a flaw if the character wouldn't know the difference, okay. right? Well, the character I think was Mrs. Claus, or, or Mrs. Kringle. I mean, Mrs. Kringle. I think either said it or it was said to her, and she would know the difference. You would think she would know. <laughs> So, anyway. <laughs> well, maybe she's not that bright for Mrs. Kringle. I don't know. <laughs> so, anyway. So, you want to move on? I kind of want to. I'm dying yeah. to get to die hard. Okay. So, you want to move on to the next movie now? Yes, sir. I I have finished my my whiskey. Yeah, I'm going to add a little to my eggnog here. I see they're adding more. I am now moving to my lightsabers here. That's going to be it, though. I can't do too much sweet, man. Are you ready? Now, I know that some are listening or thinking, wait, didn't he have a cold? I get the whiskey because that warms your esophagus and it serves kind of like NyQuil. Why would he then drink a cold beer? Cold beer, folks, that's my mother's milk. 
Die Hard, the 1988 Christmas classic. Now, I have a couple fun things in store for our listeners today. Just yes, just finished. yesterday, someone tried to argue with me that Die Hard wasn't a Christmas movie. Okay. And I'm like, dude, there's Christmas music, there's Christmas decoration, uh, there's a uh, Christmas uh, party. Uh, wait, 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 no, we'll get to that, we'll get to that, okay. we'll get to that. I was like, come on. At, at the end Why of is this still a debate? At the end of this, I have nine points why <laughs> Die Hard is a Christmas movie and only three points against and I can debunk the three against. So it's really 12 for 12. But yeah, let's go. I have, but right now I have a nine and three record. Okay, uh, for the points. All right, here we go, Die Hard. So written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen, Stephen E. D'Souza. It's based on the book Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe, directed by John McTiernan. Logline, New York cop tries to save an estra- his estranged wife and several others taken hostage by terrorists during a Christmas party in Los Angeles. You can't get a better logline than that. That's right. simple, Clean. to the point, clean, and it's your act two. It is setting up the premise, right? And the word Christmas is mentioned in the logline. The, Chris, the word Christmas <laughs> is in the damn logline, folks. All right. The beats, here we go. Opening image. This is important. The opening and closing image, very important. Opening image, plane landing. Plane landing, yep. McLean arriving as an estranged husband. He's arriving. Right. Okay. Theme stated, Argyle says to McLean, so your lady sees you, you run into each other's arms, the music comes up, and you live happily ever after. This is going to be a running theme throughout. Will he live happily ever after or won't he? With his wife, mind you. I don't mean physically. And this is a point I'm going to make here. That, interestingly enough, this movie is really not about terrorists. And the front of an action film it is. But really, this is John McClane trying to fix his marriage. Right. Right? That's what this movie's truly about, which is why it will kind of key into the Christmas theme a little bit later. But anyway, it's the idea of change. At the beginning, McClane is filled with a lot of stubborn anger. And on this journey, he'll learn how to put his personal feelings and ego aside and think about what is most important in his life like all people do in Christmas movies. But anyway, we're, we'll get to that. <laughs> hey, inciting incident right. slash the catalyst. The terrorists take control of the building and make their presence known to everyone. It just occurred to me, minus the terrorists, this is a Hallmark movie. <laughs> it is. It's a Hallmark Christmas movie. It's a Hallmark Christmas movie <laughs> with better dialogue. <laughs> all right, debate begins. Right, because we actually have a structure. This is this is going to be a fun beat sheet as compared to Fat Man, because these points all hit and they all make sense. All right, debate begins. McLean at this moment could put his hands in the air and say, "Well, you know, let me just—I'll turn myself in. They'll put me with my wife. At least I know she'll be safe. I'll stay with her with all, with all the other terrorists. We'll let the cops do their job, you know. And as long as I got Holly right next to me, I just want to make sure she's okay. I'm not going to try to get away." You know, like, what's the point of that? Like, I want to make sure my wife is okay. He could have done all of that. He's not a threat at this moment. They have no idea he's a cop. They have no idea he's any sort of a threat. He could just say, let's let let the LAPD handle this. I just want to take care of my wife. The best way to do that is to protect her. No, that's his debate. He changes his mind. He decides he's going to escape and, and battle these terrorists, right? trying to figure out what is happening. He goes on this sort of covert mission at that point. I got to find out everything I can and somehow alert the cops. Well, and it right? wasn't until, I'll note, it wasn't until he witnessed the CEO get executed that he realized he's going to have to fight. 
because he sat there and watched this guy get executed, and then he was kicking himself for not doing something. Right, and and that's that's a very good point because at that point he doesn't know how deadly they are. Right, they they could have just shot off their guns to scare everyone. Right, and right. they were really just there for money. Yeah, but when they see him kill, execute Takagi, yep. then you're right. He's like, oh shit, if they're willing to kill him, that means they're willing to kill other hostages. Yeah, anybody. Yeah. Now my wife is in danger, right? Side point, and this is very important. I want to take a break for a second just to just to nail this down because I've heard this on the internet. I've heard this from other people, and it pisses me off every time. That debate that I just gave you, I have heard people argue if McLean did nothing, the movie would have ended just fine. If he didn't involve himself, no. he would have met up with Holly with all the other hostages at the end when the bad guys left and escaped with all the money. And everything would have no, been fine. The plan was to blow the building up. Thank you. I cannot argue this point enough. <laughs> Hans Gruber even says, yeah. he has a line of dialogue that says, we, he tells the FBI, I want these revolutionary brothers and sisters released. I want them taken to the roof of this building. We will exchange our hostages for their hostages in the exchange. And then whatever. And then he gets off the radio and he says to his henchmen, as soon as those things touch down, we blow the roof. They spend the next six months sifting through the rubble. When they figure out what went wrong, we'll be sitting on a beach earning 20%. Yeah. His intention is to kill everybody. Yeah, 100%. Because he even tells McLean later, if you steal $600, you can disappear. When you steal $600 million, they will find you unless they think you're already dead. He wanted them to not be able to, 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 to identify which bodies were the hostages and which bodies were the terrorists. He wanted the cops to believe that everybody died when the roof blew. So he was going to kill everybody. Yeah. So I cannot argue this enough. If McLean doesn't make that debate, doesn't make that decision, they're all dead. Yeah. Yep. He had to do what he was going to do to save everybody. All right. Sorry. I had to take a little break there. Break into two. Takagi's killed and McLean sees it. And he kind of hears Han's plan, right? When he's listening, he can hear that they're trying to get into the safe. That's the whole point. He's trying to get into the vault. And when Takagi refuses to give up the vault, they kill him. After escaping, he sets off the fire alarm in hopes of alerting the cops. He's n this is now officially the mirror flip of Act 1. We are now in Act 2, right? Officially. He's on the run in the building alone. And the concept, the premise is being delivered. Terrorists have hostages. McLean has to try to alert the cops, and he battled the hostages one at a time. Right. That's your fun and games, which is the next beat. Fun and games. The, this is what we call the promise of the premises. When the scenes from the trailer happen, right. that's when you know you're in Act 2, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. McLean battles some bad guys. He kills Carl's brother. There's the rooftop shootout scene. Oh, when he There's... kills Carl's brother. I'm so bummed I didn't see that, t that sweatshirt that I could have bought before oh, before yes. today because i would have bought it for this i would have wore it for this podcast it's so the, tell, tell everyone what sweatshirt you're talking well about. it's the sweatshirt that what's the guy's name it's carl's brother right yeah it's he, carl's brother um mclean kills him sends him down the elevator and so the elevator opens up on the floor where the all the terrorists are and they see him he's laying he's sitting upright in the elevator dead with blood, handwritten blood in on the sweater or on the sweatshirt that he was wearing, and it says, "Now I have a machine gun." Ho ho ho! Right? Is that what yes. it says? And yes. the sweatshirt that you can buy, it looks like it's a sweatshirt, just like that, written in blood, a replica of that. Now I have a machine gun. Ho ho ho! 
Yeah. So that's a what a Christmas sweatshirt that would be. <laughs> now, and this is another interesting point because I've heard this argument. Why do any of that? Why not just have the bad guy just is missing? He's no longer at his post. They sent him up there to try to find somebody and he went missing. Why send the body back down and alert the terrorists that you exist? Yeah. And that you're now armed. There's a very simple reason for that. It's to get them off their plan, right? So, and he can hear what he's on top of the elevator. Yeah, so he knows this is a, ch- is a yeah, he's a chance to find out who the boss is, find out his name. He's writing down everything with yeah, a sharpie on yeah, his arm. On his arm, right. So he can get information. There's, so there's a lot of reasons why you do that. Right. But ultimately, other than getting information, he's ruffling their feathers. He's letting them know, like, whatever great plan you had. He even says later, I'm a fly in the ointment, Hans. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Pain in the ass. Okay. So a lot of this happens in the fun and games part, including the air duck scene. Come out to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. Okay. B story. What is the B story? Again, we talk about the B story is the character that gets introduced usually about a half hour in. That's supposed to bring some relief to the main character's struggles. Yeah. Right? That's why I said if Mrs. Claus was the B story, she's introduced way too early in Fat Man, right? Right, right. She's supposed to relieve some of the pain and stress from the main character. The B story is often romantic interest in in, in romance movies, but in a lot of times in buddy films, or yeah. it, you know, it could be a partner. Jaws, we talk about how Hooper is introduced right at the 30-minute mark. Yep. Right? Richard Dreyfuss's characters come to sort of relieve some of the pressure from Roy Scheider's character. So enter Sergeant Powell. Sergeant Al Powell (laughs) is introduced to try and take some of the pressure off the main character 45 minutes in. Mm -hmm. So it's a little late, but remember, half hour in for a 100 to 110 minute film, Die Hard runs over two hours. Right, So introducing the B story at 45 minutes, not that big. Just about right. Right, because this is yeah, this is a two twelve, two hour and twelve minute. Yeah, so it's it's just about right on. Plus, you remember that the fun in games, what they did right that Fat Man does wrong, they take extra time to develop that premise part. Right, right. The part from the jump to Act Two to the midpoint, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Like I said, the rooftop shootout scene. Yeah. The air duct scene. There's a lot of cat and mouse shit going on. It's delivering the premise for you before. They introduce the B story. Yep. They do that right. And yeah, and there's that scene where he's talking with Sergeant Paul after getting his feet all cut up with glass and he's all oh, he's wait, out of breath. Oh, well, I mean, I'm just saying he gets to that yeah. point in the story where they, they have this real heart to heart. So it was it was it was great char- uh, character development between him and uh, Sergeant Paul. You're getting ahead of the game. Uh, I'm sorry. I love this movie. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Midpoint scene. First utterance of yippee-ki-yay motherfucker happens at the midpoint scene. Why is that a false victory? McLean has made contact with Hans, and now he's trying to bully him. He knows a little bit. He knows a lot about him. He knows a lot about their what they've got set up. He's got their detonators, Mm -hmm. right? He's got a machine gun. He's got a radio. He's kind of feeling like, I got you by the balls, man. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. That happens at the midpoint scene. And why is that a false victory? Because we know everything's going to go to shit. Yeah. Oh, everything yeah. bad's about that, to yeah, happen that, That's that. before he got his feet cut up. <laughs> right. So his tangible goal of having the upper hand against Hans is kind of realized there. That's why it's a false victory. Bad guys closing in. Now we're in the second half of the film where, again, everything starts to go to bad. There's several shit-hits-the-fan moments that are laid out in the second part of the film. The storming of the police. They get annihilated. John tries to help. The deputy chief of police 
is a pain in the ass who hates McLean, <laughs> doesn't want John's help. Ellis tries to help. He gets killed. Hans finds out John's identity. All this is happening in the bad guys closing in. Yeah. So the fake plan gets laid out to the cops where the hostages are... Uh, Hans is only doing this because he wants his revolutionary brothers and sisters that are captive around the world released. He's acting like that's why they're doing this. So all that gets laid out. And it it all sort of culminates in the all is lost. Again, it's the moment where the main character feels like all hope is gone. Yeah. Now. And that's the scene where I was talking about. <laughs> um, Because really the yeah, all, well, all is lost is kind of at that point when he's yeah, talking so, to... Right. Uh, so, well, let me get to it. Yeah. So after John meets Hans face-to-face, they have a shootout with the bad guys. Mm-hmm. He's basically lost everything except his own life. He loses his machine gun. Doesn't get it again for the rest of the movie. He loses his detonators. Hans gets has the detonators back, so now he can blow up whatever bombs he wants. Yep. He loses his anonymity. They know what he looks like now. Yep. Right? He's lost his upper hand. He loses all of that in that scene. To say nothing of the fact, he takes a huge shard of glass to the bottom of his bare foot, right? Not to mention the small shards of glass. Yeah, yeah, that are all over his body, actually. But the one on the bottom of his foot uh, is leaking like a sieve. Uh, like, yeah. there's just, That's a rough, just Anyone that out. has a hard time with blood and, I mean, if, if you've ever cut your foot, oh, man, that scene is rough. Yes. It's like, and uh, And to make matters worse... In an effort to try to feel a little better about himself, I guess, he makes a crack at Powell about, you know, why are you such a desk jockey? Why don't you get out yeah. here and be a real cop like yeah. us? When and he gets met feet? with the Yeah, he gets met with the I shot a kid story. Yeah. So McLean is at about as bottom as you can get <laughs> right. at this point. Not Didn't only think has he, he could lost get any everything. Lower. No. Yeah, just like, right, exactly. <laughs> if I couldn't get any fucking lower on how I feel right now, thanks, Powell. You just made me feel like even more shit. So that whole scene is the all is lost for McLean. Dark Knight of the Soul. John laments about his marital marital failures. Yeah. And he says, and I quote. It took me a while to figure out what a jerk I've been. That when things started to pan out for her, I should have been more supportive. I should have been behind her more. Tell her she's the best thing that's ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me say I love you a thousand times. She's never heard me say I'm sorry. Hmm. Huge, right? Talk about Dark Knight of the Soul. And of course, he gets the realization, right? Because again, this is another beautiful element to the Dark Knight of the Soul is when the main character believes all is lost and they got nowhere to go to win. They're pretty much accepting death or whatever. They've lost. They're, they've failed. Something happens or somebody says something or even they say something that gives them an idea. The man upstairs. And that idea is what pushes them into Act 3. And sure right. enough, he says, just make it out of there and all you know, everything will be fine. And he says, that that's, a, that's up to the man upstairs. And then almost a literal fucking light goes off. Right. He's like, what was Hans doing upstairs? Right? So now he's got an idea. Wait a second. There's another element here I'm missing. Mm-hmm. There's something I got to go investigate. Right? So now we break into Act 3. McLean tells Powell, lay off for a while. Okay? Realize that's the last time he talks to Powell. Mm. Well, he screams at him <laughs> right before his fight with Carl. Yeah. But but that's basically the last time he yeah. talks to Powell until in a conversation movie, right? until the end. So he says, lay off for a while, and he's going to go plunge himself into Act 3 by trying to investigate what the hell Hans was doing and what's going on. Act 3, five-point finale. Here we go. You ready? <laughs> Gathering the team. 
McLean is investigating and finds out the roof is wired. Okay? Why is that gathering the team? Because the second he sees the roof is wired is his last connection with Powell when he says, Paul, Paul, double cross, the whole roof is wired. So he's trying to let the cops know that whole plan you guys had? Don't do it. Don't do it. Execution of the plan. Face-to-face with henchman Carl. John knows he's got to take this guy out and save his wife, right? They've sent Carl to kill him. Now, yep. Carl, of course, is the henchman. He's the the right-hand man of Hans. And he wants played, revenge. Played wonderfully by Alexander Goodenough, by the way. Right. Who's a, who's a ballet dancer in real life. And obviously that translates into martial arts fighting. So, he, yeah, he wants revenge for the fact that McLean killed his brother. Hightower surprise. After he kills Carl, he's feeling pretty good. I got rid of the henchman. I know what the plan is. All I got to do is get all the hostages off the roof, save Holly, and we're good. Hightower surprise. He gets up there to find out what? Holly's not up there. Mm-hmm. She was taken hostage by Hans separately to the vault. Right. That's a Hightower surprise for him because now he's like, fuck, I came up here to get my wife, and now instead of my wife, I've got 30 hostages of people I don't even know. Right. Right? But I got to get them off there somehow. I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. You said he lost his machine gun. Doesn't he use his machine gun to fire over the heads of the hostages to get them off the roof? Not his machine gun. Right. When that when the one guy opens up the roof door and he t- shoots him, he takes his machine gun. So then he gets up there, fires off, you know, to try to get everybody to go down. The FBI thinks he's a terrorist. They try to kill him. She was taking the hostage. Uh, Holly was taking hostage. That was the uh, high tower surprise. Now he's got to get the hostages off the roof, and he's got to get off the roof himself. Yeah. The FBI is trying to kill him, so they're shooting at him. And, of course, we have one of my favorite scenes of all time, action sequences, where he ties the, the fire, fire hose, hose around his waist yeah. and jumps off the side of the building as it's blowing up. Yeah, what a great as the roof scene, is blowing. man. Yes. He fires his way into <laughs> back into the 30th floor where he was just at. Race to crash um, through more glass. Crash through more glass. <laughs> and now he's got the dig down deep moment, right? He's got two bu- bullets left in his gun. That's it. Two. And he doesn't really know how many terror. He knows there's two or three terrorists left. But what is he going to do? He only has two bullets and his machine gun, the machine gun that he took off the other guy, is empty. So that's useless to him. Execution of the new plan. One of the terrorists comes running out with the bonds, Kristoff. He belts Kristoff in the face with the butt of the machine gun, knocks him out cold. Okay? By the way, Kristoff and Theo are the only two to survive. <laughs> Every other terrorist dies. Right. Anyway, so he knocks out Kristoff. Uh, and then he has this big climax with Hans and Eddie and the whole gold watch thing. And we're going to talk about that in a second. So, of course, the big the big execution of the new plan. Two bullets. He finds the seed and greetings, season greetings tape, tapes the gun to his back. Yep. It's a great moment where Hans gets to deliver the yippee-ki-yay motherfucker. And then, of course, he starts laughing. Um, yeah, because he said yippee-ki-yay motherfucker. Motherfucker. <laughs> Way you said but, it. but what's funny is that McLean really sets that up because right when he knows he's going to die or yeah. supposedly they're going to kill him, he's dropped his machine gun. Holly thinks they're both dead. Holly's being held gunpoint at this point, by the way. She believes they're both dead. Everything couldn't be bleaker for them right now. But before he gets killed, John says to him, you would have made a pretty good cowboy yourself, Hans. Right? To try to keep yeah. this going a little bit. Yeah. Let me see if I can keep the banter going a little bit. Because the longer I make them feel relaxed, the better shot I have. Right. If they're pointing their guns at me, I might not survive this. But if they know that they've got me, 
right? They know they got me by the balls. They might relax a little bit, then I can get them. So he in- introduces that line of dialogue, and when Hans jumps right in it, he falls right, right for that trap. Yeah. Because that's when Hans says, "Wait a minute, what did you say to me before?" Yippee kaye, motherfucker. <laughs> so then they all start laughing, right? They all start laughing, and that relieves the tension of the moment. There's only one person in that scene that's not laughing. Holly. Uh, Holly, yeah. <laughs> She's say. like, what the fuck yeah, is going, going on, on here? <laughs> uh, and that's when he yells Holly, and she gives you know a little chop in the ribs there to get away from Hans. You know, climactic moment. John kills both. Nice shot between the eyes on Eddie, by the way. And then Hans goes over, and we have what can only be known as the Nakatomi moment. It's not Christmas Eve until Hans Gruber falls from Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> I have a, a couple of parts on that. I want to make sure I listed it down. I didn't. I missed it, so I'm going to tell you right now. One of the trivia things. When they shot that scene, okay, they were on a soundstage, and they knew they were going to blue screen it. Right? Yeah. Obviously, you can't really drop him out of a building. But the drop was still on the soundstage a good 30, 40, 50 feet, something like that. Yeah. But it was onto one of those big air mattresses, you know, or right. whatever. So they wanted the realism of his face. Yeah, yeah. Because even the real actor, Alan Rickman, said in an interview, he's like, I still wasn't very happy about, they still wanted to drop me like 40 feet. Right. He's like, so even though, so he's like, so I was tensing up and preparing myself for it. Right, right. Well, they got up there. And they said, okay, we're going to drop you on three. Okay? One. And they drop him. <laughs> they don't even keep counting. So his reaction is real. Yeah. He didn't know it was coming. So when they drop him, he's got that look on his face like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like they're dropping me. <laughs> so he didn't know it was coming. That's why his face is authentic like right, that. Right, right. That was really his face. Yeah. He really didn't know they were dropping him. So so it's pretty pretty funny, pretty great moment. A little trivia there. All right, so let me, I, I jumped over it real quick. This kind of goes into the theme of Christmas. We're going to talk about it a little bit. Before you do, there's a couple things. Just a couple lines that, like, one I just loved. I thought it was funny. And then another one that just, I always I always yell at the TV or the whatever, I'm, I'm watching the movie. At the very beginning, when, he, when John McClane gets there, he's got to go in there and he's got to punch her name into the computer. Yeah. And the guard's like, oh, the party. Yeah, they're the only ones left in the building. Well, why'd you make him go through the computer thing? So, so Dad, I know why. I know Dad why. Always said, Dad always says that too. Well, and Dad's I know why. Like, they needed to set up that she changed her last name. I get it. You know, right? But and Dad always said that too. Well, why, if that's the answer, why even bother? Oh, here's why, <laughs> and not just because of what you said. Because of a plot point, you need to know that she's using her maiden name. Yeah. There's actually another reason. There's a building filled with different offices. It's the Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah. But I'm sure there's other companies on some of the other floors. I know. He but could have it's... gone in, and what if he typed it in and said, she works for FedEx? He could have been like, they went home already. They're already gone. You know what I mean? So when yeah. he says 30th floor, he says, oh, she, he's at the par- she's at the party. Well, I know, but he actually says, oh, they're the only ones left in the building. So it's like. Right, but he wouldn't have known who Holly works for, the guy in the front, is what I'm saying. I know. So he could have typed her name in. And it could have been like, oh, she works for Postal Express or something. Okay. And you know what I mean? Like, whatever. It still now, seems ironic. <laughs> yeah, because, well, the part that's missing is McLean knows she works for Nakatomi. Yeah. He knows she's at that Christmas party. So instead of typing it in, he could have said, I'm looking for Holly Gennaro. Oh. And he says, just type it in there. He could have said, well, she works for Nakatomi, isn't, you know. 
Yeah, does she work for Nakatomi? Yeah, like, yeah okay. She, she, wor- she works for Nakatomi. What floor are they But on? then we missed the uh, opportunity to learn she right. changed her last name. Of I course, get it. of course. <laughs> but, like, you know, people like you and Dad have to pick that freaking shit apart all the time. So the other one, uh, the other one was the after the helicopter, yeah, the rift blows up, the helicopter crashes. And uh, what's his, is he the police chief, commissioner? What, what's his uh, role? Deputy chief of police, Dwayne deputy, Robinson. Yeah, deputy chief of police who uh, has a, a wardrobe like Barry Manilow. <laughs> Not in this movie. <laughs> he does in Breakfast, Breakfast Club. Club. Yeah, when he says actor. we're gonna need some more FBI guys, I guess. <laughs> That's great. That's, what's funny about that is that. He's been battling Powell and McLean this whole movie, and that's the first moment of like comic relief. <laughs> right. Where he's, in fact, right before that, when the shit's going down, he goes, "I don't like the looks of this Sarge." <laughs> like he actually's talking to Powell now, like they're equals. Right. Like the whole movie's been like, you know, get the fuck out of my face, whatever, blah blah blah. And in that moment, they're almost like partners. He's like, "I don't like the look of this Sarge," and then when it happens, he's like, "Christ, we need some new FBI guys, I guess." Right. <laughs> So that is a funny moment. But wait, we've kind of we've kind of skipped the end here. So Okay. Resolution, of course, McLean wins. He he's happily finds Holly. You know, uh, of course we get to the part where Powell puts his demons to bed by killing Carl. Holly takes out Thornburg for just being Thornburg, right? <laughs> and then the closing image, mirror flip of the first one, instead of McLean arriving as an estranged husband, he's now leaving as a happily married man. Yep. A complete flip of the opening image. Because of the journey that happened in between. Okay, other trivia. By the way, we get, before we get to the trivia, I already said one piece of trivia. Do you see how clearly the the beats are laid out? Yeah. And how, how the structure is perfect and clean. Yep. Right? Fat Man does none of that shit, yeah. pretty much. It, you know, and again, we had this argument when we, when we did Jaws versus Jaws 4. Jaws has such clear beats and and plot points and nailing the beats down and then you get to Jaws 4 and none of that shit happens and it's right. just a mess because of it and and for anyone that wants to be a writer that's why you have to nail these beats to keep your story clean all right trivia the 1966 book the detective was the first well i want to say his first book but it's the book about this the author wrote that book that wrote nothing lasts forever was centered around a cop named Joe Leland who's played in the 1968 film, The Detective, by Frank Sinatra. Hmm. Sinatra wanted a sequel, okay? But by the time Roderick Thorpe wrote Nothing Lasts Forever, which came out in 1979, Sinatra was already a little too old to be playing this cop, Joe Leland. And he, so he was too old to play the part. Also, what took so long is that Roderick Thorpe had later said, I think in an interview, he had trouble writing a sequel because he kills everybody in the detective. Yeah, in the right. Book, the detective, almost everybody dies off except the lead. So he's like, "How am I going to write a sequel?" You know what I mean? So he kind of had to hash up the sequel where it's actually not his estranged wife. He's going out to see his daughter, mm. who I believe in the book dies. She's who falls off the building, not Hans Gruber. Oh my god! So yeah, so kind of bleak. But this <laughs> so had Sinatra, a much better ending. So Sinatra was a little too old to play him by the time it came out. So by the time they were kicking around Hollywood or who's going to write the script, it went through several different writers. When these guys got a hold of it, they turned it into what you know today as Die Hard. Stevie Wonder's song Skeletons, which is kind of about lies and deceit, is played twice in Argyle's limo. So it's, you're suggesting it's either an hour-long song, which it isn't, 
Or Argyle likes it so much, he plays it twice. Yeah. It's it's heard two times when Argyle's in the limo. The very first time is when John McClane calls down to the limo. And he says, hey, Mac, how's it going? And he's like, oh, the boat's not in yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's when the bad guys are cutting the phone lines. Yep. In that scene, you hear Stevie Wonder's song Skeletons playing hmm. in the background. That same song is playing when Powell's getting his car shot up and he's going in reverse. He's like, oh, damn it, Jesus H. Christ. Right. So, I need backup assistance now. You know, wow. they do a shot of Theo in the limo and yeah. he's on the phone. He doesn't even know what's going on behind him. Yeah. That song is still playing. I didn't even catch same, that it was the same it, song. That's it's funny. the same song. But what's funny is the reason why it's two parts of the same song is that at the beginning when he's first talking to McLean, it's the buildup of the song. It's the beginning of the song. Mm-hmm. So that signifies the story's about to start, right? It's kind of a low, like, dun 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 But then, when the shit's hitting the fan, yeah. and he's rocking to the song, you can hear Stevie Wonder's lyric of, turning up the heat to getting ready to pop. <laughs> That's the line <laughs> of the lyric. <laughs> so John McTiernan specifically used that song for two different parts of the movie to you know, basically designate what's going on in the story. Yeah. Genius use of a song, by the way. Okay, so I have an interesting little thing here before we talk about whether or not it's a Christmas movie. This is for writers. If you want to know why Die Hard is so awesome, and you can do this with other of your favorite films and see if it works, in a really well-written screenplay, do the beats work for other characters, not just your lead? So we're going to do, real quick, a little fun little exercise. We're going to do a quick beat sheet for Sergeant Al Powell. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Opening image. He's buying snacks to take home to his pregnant wife. Theme stated. Thought you guys just ate donuts. That's what the clerk at the store tells him. Why is that a theme? Here's why. He's signifying the theme is, is Powell a regular old cop? Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. Let me dig into this here. This is the scene because Powell's carrying around that regret that we don't even know about yet. Right, right. right. But it's got him off the street. So he doesn't have the respect of his fellow officers because he's a desk jockey. He refused to go out on the streets anymore, right? He, he just mans a desk now. So is he like every other cop or not? That's his personal theme. Can I be a cop like everybody else? Or am I the guy that just sits at a desk all day because I'm afraid to go out on the street? Because I had this, this accident, this trauma in my past. Inciting incident. Given the task of checking out Nakatomi Plaza, a body falls on his car. Boom. He's now in act two. Debate de- begins. He's got a debate here. He could easily say, I'm going home, guys. Here's what's going on. All the cops show up. The deputy chief of police shows up. And he says, this isn't my thing. I'm a desk jockey. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take my Twinkies and go home to my pregnant wife, which is where I was going when all this happened. You guys take care of this. This is real police work. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do that, though, does he? Right. He makes the decision to stay, right? Okay, break into two. He makes contact with McLean. We're now in his second act of his story, where he's now talking back and forth with McLean after the cops show up. T- Deputy Chief of P- Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne Robinson hasn't shown up yet, but the other cops have. Fun and games. Premise. Information goes back and forth, including the cops' raid on the building. Midpoint scene. Powell tells off his boss. This is important as a midpoint scene. In his story, being the tough cop instead of a desk jockey is what he wants, though he hasn't actually earned the respect yet. Right? 
but that's a false victory for him. I got to tell off my boss. That's when the cops, when the deputy says, I'm really going to go after McLean now. And he says, you think he gives a damn what you're going to do to him if he makes it out of there? Why don't you wake up and smell what you're shoveling, you know? The cop says, anytime you want to go home, Sergeant, you consider yourself dismissed. No way. You couldn't, or no, no, sir. You couldn't drag me away. Midpoint scene. Right, right. Bad guys closing in. The FBI comes. They're in charge now, which makes it harder for Powell to achieve his spiritual goal. Because if the FBI comes in and takes over, Powell has no chance to to redeem himself. I love this so much because it's so perfect as opposed to the other movie we talked about, (laughs) where all the other characters had no arcs. Well, I couldn't figure out what any arc for any character was. All right. All is lost. Break into three. Now, because it's not his story, it's McLean's story, we're going to combine two things into one here. The all is lost and the break into three. Usually there's an all is lost, a dark night of the soul where they debate, and then they decide to break into three. Mm-hmm. Those three things happen. But it's not Powell's story. It's McLean. So we have to kind of cram those into one here. And he has one sort of big scene, all is lost, break into three. The roof blows. The FBI agents die. It's a false defeat because you think, boy, this is bad. We lost the FBI agents. Well, that all is lost scene, Powell is sharing his trauma, and so he's sharing his all is lost, kind of. He's Yes, but that's more McLean's all is lost scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, but Powell's all is lost, I believe, is when he doesn't, he can't talk to McLean anymore. Yeah, right? and right. he's not he, in charge. Yeah, he's yeah. not in charge. He's lost the ability to, to talk to McLean. Yeah, he doesn't. He's got nothing now. He could just go home at this point. Right. But the roof blows. The FBI guys die. This is a, again a false defeat because it seems like a defeat. Holy shit! They just blew up the FBI agents. But in reality, he cannot reach his redemption with those FBI guys around. Right. Five point finale. Are you ready? Even Powell has a five point finale. <laughs> Here it. we go. Gathering the team. Okay, so you have to work with me on this one. Gathering the team. He's going with all the other cops to see all the hostages coming out, right? He's 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 assisting in saving and getting the hostages out of the building. He's really looking for McLean, but he doesn't know what he looks like, and he hasn't talked to him in a while, so he doesn't know if he's dead. Right. Right? He could be thinking McLean's dead, but I got to go find out for myself. Execution of the plan. He makes actual face-to-face contact with McLean and hugs it out. That's the execution of his plan. He feels important, like he's a regular cop. Hightower surprise. Carl is alive, and he rises up with his gun. He's going to kill McLean. Dig down deep. Everybody loses their shit except Powell, right? Yep. As McLean covers over Holly and everyone else is in fear and shock, Powell must take control. Execution of the new plan. Pow, 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 pow. (laughs) And one more good one. Pow. (laughs) Powell takes out Carl. Resolution. Powell saves the day and has earned the respect of the other cops, and he's reached his spiritual goal of redemption. Yep. Closing image, he puts his gun away, and he goes back home to his pregnant wife, which is where he was going when it started. Yep. (laughs) So tell me, doesn't Powell have a clear beat three-act structure? Yeah, 100%, man. And like like I said, it's so gratifying, especially after talking about that other turd movie. So, right. Yeah. Right. So, so that's the thing, man. It's like if for really good scripts, for you writers out there, create a beat sheet, create the storyline, this solid three-act structure should work for other main characters. Now, does it have to work for everybody? No. 
I bet you, if I took the time, I didn't have time, but if we took the time, we could write out a beat sheet like this for Hans. But it would almost be a complete reversal of John's, right? Yeah. So every time something bad happens, that's good for Hans, right? Every time something bad happens to McLean, that's a plus for Hans. You know what I mean? You could almost come up with the same beat sheet, only reverse the highs and lows, and you would have Hans Gruber's beat sheet, yeah. right? Yep. And which brings me to the gold watch. Hans Gruber's, if you were to do a beat sheet for Hans Gruber, I can tell you what his spiritual goal would be, what lesson he needs to learn. And this is one of the points of whether or not it's a Christmas movie. The gold watch signifies materialism, right? Mm. Money. And they try to throw it in John's face in the beginning of the movie when Ellis says, show him the watch. Yeah. She's, and she's like later and he's like, it's oh, a it's Rolex. Just a, it's just a token of our appreciation <laughs> for all her hard work. It's a Rolex. Ellis Fuck is such you, a dude. douche. Such a douche. <laughs> But here's the thing. It represents material things. And what does every Christmas movie teach us? Family yeah. over material things. Yeah. Right? To learn what you truly need to respect is attention, affection, love, family. Those are the things that matter at Christmas, not money, not gifts, not material things. Right? How is this signified at the end? Hans Gruber is holding on to that watch. When he's dangling from the building. Yeah. And it's signifying that he's still grasping at the reason why he was there. Yeah. He wants money. He wants the material things. And John McClane unlatches the watch, right? Yep. And that's what causes Gruber to fall. So if you were to create a beat sheet for Hans Gruber, it would end with him realizing his spiritual goal was... You shouldn't have been chasing the money, honey. <laughs> you shouldn't have been chasing material things or you wouldn't have fallen to your death. So right? gratifying. <laughs> right. And you could have, and again, if we had the time, we could come up with a beat sheet for Hans. Yeah. And that would be his spiritual goal, yeah. is learning that lesson. Unfortunately, he learns the lesson in the 10 seconds or so it takes for him to drop to his death. I was trying death. to think. I think you could do the same thing for Holly, too, but I'm trying to think like- it's Holly not has as, a lot less opportunity. It, it is less, less yeah. yeah. A, lot, a lot less scenes. Well, um, yeah, and there's slightly less but she, character development, too. But she grows, too. But she grows, too, right? Yeah. She she grows in I a mean, way, too. I mean, there's definitely to, a character arc there, yeah. Like, yeah, her character arc in a much shorter version is, in the beginning of the film, she thinks John only cares about himself and he's not willing to do anything for other people. He's not willing to sacrifice. By the end of the movie, when she sees him again... And sees that he's covered in blood. He's got, he's barely he's almost naked. He's got only pants on. Mm -hmm. And she says, "Jesus!" When yeah. she sees him, like everything he went through, right, to save her, he she realizes her arc is, he's not selfish. He's not egotistical. He did all that shit to save me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's when she realizes, you know, her arc is to. Except that, you know, sometimes he's brash, sometimes he's egotistical, sometimes it's he's stubborn and it's his way or no way. But when it comes to family, he is willing to put everything out there for her, you know. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of growth in this film between those two. And that's why it's not really about the terrorists. It's about their marriage. Right, right. Right. Um, okay. 
Are we ready to get into the reasons why it's a Christmas movie? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. Here we go. I have nine points. And I don't think any of them mention the gold watch. So that's actually a tenth one that I just told you ahead of time. Okay. Okay. So we actually have ten then. So the gold watch is a Christmas theme. Chasing money and not family. Right. So if we include the gold watch, it's actually ten reasons why it's a Christmas movie. But here we go. Let's assume that was number one. Here's number two. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, called the Ode to Joy. Yeah. It serves as part of the unofficial soundtrack for the movie, right? Right. While it was not written specifically as a Christmas song, in Japan, that song is strongly connected to the idea of opening of presents. Ode to Joy is. Well, and I think even in Western culture, it's it's associated with Christmas, probably because of a whole bunch of Christmas movies. I was going to say probably it. because of Die Hard. <laughs> well, maybe. But Nakatomi, of course, is a Japanese company. So the reason they're playing Ode to Joy throughout that film in the movie, not just part of the soundtrack, but in the movie they're playing it at the party, is because it signifies the opening of presents. Next, speaking of the soundtrack, John McClane's unofficial sound when he's about to make his presence known are the jingle bells. When something's about to happen, just like at the end, when he's got the gun taped to his back, you hear the jingle bells. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, ding, yeah, ding, I forgot. Ding. Yeah. That's a sound effect. And it's used only when John's about to do something. Yeah. So he's got jingle bells as his own personal soundtrack. Specifically, the opening arrival at the airport. You hear them then, too. Okay. Next part, there are four Christmas songs that play in the movie, including a rap song at the beginning. Yeah, Run DMC. Argyle's, yeah, Run DMC when Argyle's driving him there. Okay, next, the word Christmas is said 19 times, <laughs> which is an average of once every six and a half minutes of Damn, the film. that's crazy. Five, a website, or actually this is six if you include the, the gold watch. The next point, a website called stephenfollows.com, which rates movies on their level of Christmas, depicted in them, Die Hard was rated as, as having 99% more Christmas vibe than any <laughs> film released in the last 30 years. That's insane. Even more than Elf? Come on. Hey, man, trust the websites. Next. Well, 99. Maybe Elf was the 100. <laughs> Maybe Elf You're was right. 100%. <laughs> Next. Ultimately, the underlying theme... Oh, no. this Okay, so it is nine points. This was my point here about material things. Christmas is the time to cherish family, not money. The terrorists represent money and the mm. desire for material things, whereas John McClane becomes, through completion of his spiritual goal, a man who puts family and love above anything else. The cinematic image of this is releasing the gold watch so that Hans Gruber falls to his death. He, he was clinging to the material object as John, protector of his family, lets him go. So that was actually one of the elements. Okay, that was the sixth element. Was the bloody sweatshirt that said ho, ho, ho in that list somewhere? Did it <laughs> fit you into mention, that? You, funny you should mention. Point number seven. <laughs> John and Hans make several Christmas references okay. throughout the film. One example for each. John writes ho, ho, ho on Carl's dead brother's sweater after taking his gun. Hans tells Theo later in the film, it's Christmas, Theo. It's the time of miracles. So be of good cheer. Yeah. (laughs) Point number eight. Takes place on Christmas Eve. 
And the holiday of Christmas is the reason John is there. Yeah. He went out there because it's Christmas. Nine, the ninth and final. An article in Men's Health on the Men's Health website suggests another idea that other people overlook. McLean is serving as a Christ-like character. One who is A, put under trial by forces of evil in his attempts to redeem everyone. B, is often barefoot and cut with glass. Thus, stigmata marks are like Christ's wounds during crucifixion. This is all off a website, by the way. I'm not making this up. (laughs) C, McLean must be delivered like a child and Powell treats McLean as he might his own son. Though removed, a Joseph-like character. Hmm. If you can see the connections between religious undertones and Die Hard, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. <laughs> all right. That last one was a stretch, but I didn't include it. So, all right. Three reasons why it is not a Christmas movie, and I can debunk all three of them. Number one, <laughs> Bruce Willis himself said it was not a Christmas movie. My argument is, if we start believing now everything celebrities say, then, you know. (laughs) Right. We'll never find our way out of this world. Yes. Uh, Willis has kids and likely wanted to spend their youth watching other holiday fare and not his vulgar-laced film. (laughs) Probably. So his opinion is compromised. (laughs) Two, the distribution company, 20th Century Fox, obviously didn't see it as a Christmas movie as it was released in July of 1988. Well, I have a debunking for that, too. The 1947 Miracle on 34th Street was released on the 4th of July. <laughs> and I would also say they knew when the DV- the, the CDs right. or, or VHS tapes, and they did that, have DVDs back right. then. That could be. They knew when part- they'd be released, just in time for the Christmas season. They didn't have DVDs yet. That was still yeah, VHS. They did. Not they- 1988. That was more of a 1998. Well, I know they had audio CDs in 88. Well, yeah, they had audio CDs. They didn't have DVDs until the late 90s. But but still. I'm going to fact check you on that. Okay, fact check me. Uh, You're talking to a guy who worked at Blockbuster Video, (laughs) for God's sakes, and you're going to tell me when DVDs came out. All right, anyway. So, so yeah, so to that point, though, they knew it would hit video at Christmas time. Right? Damn it, you're right, dude. I know it. You know, if only I heard that enough at home from DVDs became available in 1996 in Japan and in March 97 in the United States. I worked at Blockbuster Video. I can't believe that you challenged me on that. (laughs) All right. Anyway, but to that point, right? They knew that if they release it in July, it'll be ready for VHS consumption. Which was a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Third and final point. The central idea that what makes a film a Christmas movie is if you take the holiday out of the movie, does it still work? And in Die Hard, yes. McLean could have been coming out to L.A. to see his family for any number of situations. It could have been a child's birthday. It could have been Easter. It could have been Fourth of July. It didn't have to be Christmas. However, here's how I debunk that. If you take the basic theme of It's a Wonderful Life widely considered the ultimate Christmas classic, and you take Christmas out of it, yeah. that movie still works too. Yeah. It's about a suicidal man who's shown by an angel how his life would be if he never existed. Yeah. It really has nothing to do with Christmas, basically. In fact, Christmas isn't even mentioned in the It's a Wonderful Life logline, but it's mentioned in the Die Hard logline. 
There you so go. suck on that, people. <laughs> suck on that. Die Hard, I have just proven to you, is a Christmas movie. I think the argument is dead now. We can move on. Yes. Well done. Any final thoughts on Die Hard before we get to Six Degrees? No. Nope, I feel like, watch as it. usual, I feel like I've been monopolizing the conversation. Yeah, I came along for the ride. I mean, I just, I enjoyed, I enjoyed rewatching it. I enjoyed, yeah, just talking about it. It's fun. I just love this movie so much. So, yeah, so before we get to Six Degrees, the final thing. I mean, writers. We, a lot of times we do this for, for writers, screenwriters. Guys, can you see... Or gals. The, well, when I say guys, it's like I include the gals. <laughs> right. It's like calling chicks a dude, you know? Like, you know, you know my seven-year-old has been calling me bro lately. Is that a thing <laughs> nowadays? I don't know where she got it. I want to hear her say it. <laughs> but Vivi is like, bro, bro, bro. And I'm like... <laughs> I'm not your bro. <laughs> like, I'm your father. That's awesome. So so when I say guys, I mean, yes, I mean guys right. and gals, dudes, everyone, writers. Do you see the difference? Again, we talked about this on Jaws versus Jaws 4. Do you see the difference between these two? Fat Man had very little structure at all. And the frustrating part of Fat Man is that it had great opportunity. It had some fun themes. That could have been explored with some amazing payoffs. What I love most about a movie like Scrooged is even though it's Bill Murray at his finest and it's filled with so many funny parts, there's sad parts in it too. A lot of the character development is sad. He's a sad person. And he has to deal with this sadness that's inside of him in order for him to reach his spiritual goal. Fat Man had that opportunity. Fat Man could have been our era's Scrooged, yeah. which also came out in 1988, by the way. We could have done Scrooge versus Die Hard. That probably would have been more fun for us. But You know, another Scroo- movie I thought of was Mr. <laughs> Destiny, even though that wasn't really a Christmas movie, but it had the same idea of it's a wonderful life type you know, Absolutely. story. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and Home Alone is another one that mixes a healthy dose of comedy with some really heavy thematic elements, you know, with the old man that lives next door, right, right. his redemption with his family. You know, like there's a good a good movie has to have a connection. You can't just have some funny parts and some sad parts. You have to have uh, they have to make sense. There has to be cohesiveness. Fat Man delivers some funny parts. But it doesn't really, aside from some action scenes, it doesn't deliver enough of the drama. Mm-hmm. We don't care enough about any of these characters. Sad to say, even Santa Claus. I didn't care enough about these characters. Right, right. You know, because Santa is played by Mel Gibson might be the only reason why I cared. Right. Because because I like Mel Gibson. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I like him in movies and I like when he plays characters like that. But there was so much that they could have done and didn't. They failed on so many parts. And that's the frustrating part. Die Hard delivers, right? Die Hard delivers on its premise. Mm-hmm. It delivers on everything it's supposed to do. And Fat Man simply does not. Right. So from a writing standpoint, I mean, especially if we, you know, as we talked about, if you can do the beats the the three act structure and the beat sequences with other characters like we did for Powell, right? Then you know it's a damn good script. It's other characters have arcs. Yeah, they have goals that they need to achieve. 
Fat Man, first of all, can't seem to figure out who the damn lead is. Yeah, if you can't figure out the lead, you're in trouble. <laughs> and then you got three kind of three main characters, and none of them truly arc. Yeah. Right? I mean, the closest one to arc is Santa, but he arcs at the midpoint scene. Yeah. Yep. You know? Hey, before we jump into Six Degrees, I was you mentioned the Jaws episode a couple of times. We haven't, like... It really talked about it on this show because that was our very first guest appearance on someone else's podcast. So yes, you, it it should have gone up on the beginning of December. This will be released later in December before Christmas. So go check it out if you haven't listened or watched that one yet or listened to it. We are going to release the audio now. Lee from Lights Camera Rant, who is out of Melbourne, Australia. He was gracious enough to give us the audio and the video. We love um, you, Lee. It's going to probably take me a bit before we get it up on our YouTube channel. So I just would suggest, and I'll put it in these show notes, if you want to watch the YouTube, we'll send you to his YouTube channel probably for the first month or whatever that uh, it's uh, it's out. We just want to send the traffic to his YouTube channel and give him all the love because it was a fun episode. Yeah, he I know Lee enjoyed just us breaking down the, both movies and comparing a really, truly great movie with a really, truly awful movie. <laughs> and it was, it was freaking awesome. So, and that was a long one. It was like, what, two and a half hours, something two like that? Two and a half hours. So if you're like, have to drive somewhere far this holiday season, yeah, like listen you're going to, that to see one. family somewhere, that'll be an opportunity. You won't be able to watch it while you're driving, but right. there's not much to see anyway. Just uh, it's the sound is all you really need. But yeah, you can listen to the audio on our feed here. So, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> very good shout out to Lee. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I want to do that again, by the way. Yeah. Because uh, he had see what he, the benefit of having video along with the audio was he was able to put images on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> of the yeah, stuff yeah. we were talking about, so that was fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a good show. All right, so. I want to hear how you way, did this. The six degrees. <laughs> <laughs> so, by the way, as we said, this show will be released around Christmas time. Yeah. Yeah. So we're recording it. This week is actually Thanksgiving week. Yep. We had just dropped our Veterans Day special. Hope you listened to it. Hope you liked it. It was the two war films, All Quiet on the Western Front and The Thin Red Line. And this week is literally Thanksgiving week. Like, it's Tuesday, and Thanksgiving is in two days. Two days. So we are recording this today in our holiday outfits. Again, you can't really see us, but we're wearing Check we're out wearing our Christmas Instagram. Ones. I'm sure these these photos that we took of ourselves <laughs> recording today is going to wind up on Instagram. <laughs> yes, and, but you won't hear this until probably the week of Christmas. But we are excited for next year. I know we've talked about it already, but we're going to plug it again. We're going to start January off quickly, 2024. We're going to do Legally Blonde versus Liar Liar will be our January episode one of 2024. Not, uh, not a couple newer movies, but a couple fun comedy legal films. Fun, yeah, yeah, fun law law films. And then February, we're, we're getting back themed a little bit, a little romance theme for Valentine's Day. We're going to do a couple of romances that deal with time travel. Christopher Reeves, Somewhere in Time with Jane Seymour, and then the Rachel McAdams about time about time yeah about time and you haven't uh, seen that one yet so i'm excited i haven't to, seen it I, yeah i, I love that movie and i haven't seen yeah. it yet, so i'm excited about breaking that one down i really hope i don't think it's a turd <laughs> because then then we'll have something to argue about <laughs> all right six degrees what do you got for me today so i threw a couple names at you so from die hard 
I wait. Choke. You want to you want to explain the rules real quick? Well, in yeah, six degrees, we pick uh, two act uh, an actor from each of the films that we um, were discussing. You want we want to see if it's possible to, to connect these two actors uh, by choosing movies that they've been in and other people who've been in those movies with them. So it's basically the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, except we're using any two actors. So we're picking two actors from these movies. And the added level of difficulty is you cannot use the movies we discussed today. So so you can't use Die Hard or Fat Man in these movies so, or in the, in the six degree connections. Which... To so, be difficult when you pick people that have only been in a few things. Yes. So I kind of did that today a little bit. So the first person I chose from Die Hard was James, Shige- how do you pronounce his name? Shigeta? Shigeta. 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 And he played, what was his name in the movie, the CEO? Joe Takagi. Yeah, Takagi. Joseph Yoshinobu Takagi. Yes. So him, and I wanted to see if you could connect him to Chance Hertzfield, who is in Fat Man. He's the kid. He plays Billy. Billy right? the Kid. <laughs> Which, by the way, a little funny thing, a little added thing I will say in Fat Man is the first appearance of Billy when he's in his room. Yeah. There's a, a painting of Napoleon yeah, on the wall. <laughs> like, talk about little man syndrome, right? Yeah, like, yeah, it's just yeah. laying it on pretty thick. Yeah. But, it was, but it's still pretty funny. It worked. Chance Hertzfeld, who we said, Hertzfield, who we said was cast because he looks like Ben Shapiro. <laughs> he does look like a little Ben Shapiro. And James Shigeta, who actually been around for a long time, a lot of people think because he played Takagi so well, he must be Japanese. He's not. He's actually an American actor. He was born in Hawaii, hmm. and he died in 2014 at the age of 85. So wow. good long year for him, a good young, long career for him. Not a lot of huge movies, though. When you Google him or when it Wikipedia him, most will say best known for playing Takagi in right. Die Hard. But I got news for you. James Shigeta was in Midway yeah, in 1976. I saw that. <laughs> Midway is loaded with people. Right. One of which is James Coburn, who was in Eraser, 1996 Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. He's in that with James Kahn. And James Kahn was in a 2014 movie called Pregoland that featured Chance Hertzfield. Wow. So that was short. Three, wow. Three, three connections. I'm really surprised. Midway, Eraser, and Pregoland are the three movies that will connect James Shigeta to Chance Hertzfield. Wow. Well done. Well, again, well done. it's not a stump Jerome. No, we no. We just want to see if it can be done. I'm just surprised because that kid hasn't been in a lot of films. He really hasn't. Fat Man is probably his biggest film. Yeah. That he's done. And again, good for him, man. Anytime you can nail a Mel Gibson movie. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> and not just be in it, share a scene with Mel. Yeah. You know, that's good. I mean, again, I did see an interview with Mel where he talked about, you know, doing this movie. And he was talking about, you know, the casting of Marianne Jean-Baptiste as Mrs. Claus. I already talked about that. But another one of the things he said that I liked was when he met with the brothers. By the way, you did have a little bit of trivia for you got to mention. The brother's last name is Nelms, is it? Yeah. And there's a, was it a, a convenience a store? Or something? It's like a, a convenience, convenience store, store in the background that says Nelms Convenience Store. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I was watching it and I had, I, I was kind of looking down at IMDb and stuff and looking at who directed it while I'm watching the movie. And then that, that scene 
comes up and yeah, I, I paused it and I had to rewind. I'm like, wait a minute, did that's? Yep, it does. It's called Nelms Convenience Store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, the last name of the writers directors. Yeah. But what Mel says in the interview was funny was when they first set up a meeting to meet with him. What won him over, and 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 this gives you an idea why Mel occasionally makes these turds, like we talked about on the line, which yeah. is another Mel movie that we trashed when we did uh, the talk radio episode. Mel just likes filmmakers, I think. And he likes people that gets excited. He said that when he sat down to talk with these guys, they had lunch somewhere, and they're trying to pitch this movie to him. He said what won him over was how excited they were about the movie and about making the movie. And that just, you know, I mean, you can imagine a guy like Mel Gibson who spent his career in film, how many big wigs he must have dealt with that see it only as a business. Right, 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 right. We're going to do this movie because it's going to make money and blah, blah, blah. It must be refreshing to see young guys come along and be like, dude, we got this script. Right. It's not that great, but man, it's going to be fun. You know what I mean? Like, he probably looked at the script and was like, this script's a mess, but these guys are fun. And they're they're (laughs) excited and they're enthusiastic about making movies. Which which brings me back to Jesse's criticism. Yeah, <laughs> which is funny about it. What'd she say? It bothers me that people can make movies. Yeah, like, she said this movie is making me hate the fact that people can make movies. Right. I think she meant like that anyone can make movies. Right, right. <laughs> well, these guys are not professional. Well, they're professionals, but you know what I mean. Like they're not huge names. Yeah. But they're obviously passionate, right? They're obviously they won over Mel Gibson. Yeah. So they got to be passionate about filmmaking. Anything else on Fat Hard? Fat, are we going to use that name? <laughs> I think we're leaning towards Fat Hard as the title of this episode, combining Fat Man with Die Hard. I'll definitely have to um, put in the title, Fat Hard, A Christmas Special. <laughs> yes, yes, because what's more Christmas than Fat Hard? <laughs> but no, go watch these. If you haven't seen Die Hard, obviously watch it. Another little side trivia. Siskel and Ebert, back in 1988, Roger Ebert gave Die Hard a thumbs down. So think about that for a second. We've we've mentioned that on several of our podcast episodes. (laughs) So I always tell people, if you ever feel like you made a mistake in life, just console yourself with knowing that Roger Ebert gave Die Hard a thumbs down. But his argument was... And and the funny thing is, is he mentions this. If you, you You can YouTube it, the actual episode where they talk about it back in 1988. He really couldn't get out of... Deputy Dwayne T. Robinson, John Gleason's character, he couldn't get that out. Of, he said that was the worst character. It took him out of the film. Really? Because he said everything he said and did is something that a real police chief wouldn't do. Mm. Like, a real police chief wouldn't be so combative to somebody that's trying to help them. Right. You know, so it really took him out of the film, and he thought he was the worst written character in the film. And he just couldn't deal with it. Siskel, of course, was like, I didn't care about none of that shit. It was a great movie. I loved it. Thumbs up. (laughs) You know, it is what it is. We all make mistakes in life. I also liked from Die Hard, I liked Thornburg, the news guy. Richard Thornburg. (laughs) Who was in, what was he in, Ghostbusters? Mm Mm-hmm. He was in Ghostbusters, yeah, he right? Yeah, was the EPA guy. Man, yeah. he plays a great prick, doesn't he? He does. He does. Just Did you get that? I, <laughs> just for once, I'd like to see him in a movie where he plays like a likable, fun guy. Like, he always plays a great asshole. Yeah. 
Yeah. What's funny about that, too, is when Holly decks him at the end, you hear all the crew guys laughing. <laughs> you can hear them laughing. Yeah. Right before he says, did you get that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, it's so it's funny. It's a perfect film, man. I don't care what anyone says. Die Hard is a perfect movie. And nowadays, you can have up to 10 nominees for Best Picture up until 2008, 2009, actually. In 2008, here's a little bit of side trivia. The Dark Knight did not get nominated for Best Picture. Hmm. It didn't make the final five. It was only five nominees for Best Picture up until then. There was such an outrage that the Dark Knight did not get included for Best Picture that they changed the rules at the Oscars. So there could be more added. Up to 10 films could be nominated for Best Picture so that more inclusive films, more films that people have seen. I think that's too much, but... Well, I, it does, I, you know. they don't always hit 10. It, you can get up to 10. Okay. So sometimes there's eight, sometimes there's nine. It's not always 10. Yeah. You have to hit a certain amount of votes. Right. But but what they didn't like was that a film that just missed the cut at yeah. six, you know, was getting left out. So they changed the rules for that. If those rules were in place in 1988, Die Hard, I think it's nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. I'm going out of limb. I'm saying that. That's your hot take for the day. <laughs> Die Hard is a Best Picture nominee in 1988 if the current Academy rules existed then. Right. <laughs> but we all know who won Best Picture in 1988. Rain Man. Oh, yeah. It's hard to beat Rain Man. It's not going to win Best Picture. Die Hard wouldn't win Best Picture. Right. But it would be nominated, right? Yeah. Was it nominated for anything? If the oh yeah like well let's look it up let's Real look it quick. up I I know I know we uh, we're running a little long here but I'm sure our listeners love it when we talk about this kind of shit so yeah so Die Hard was 1988 again it's not going to win Best Picture but I can see it if today's Academy rules existed a movie like this would get nominated I'm actually surprised it didn't get nominated for Best Screenplay I will tell you this. It was nominated for four Oscars. On the all-time top 250 list on IMDb, it currently ranks 118. 118 out of 250 of all time. These are all time. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty good. 118. It was nominated. It did not win any Oscars. It was nominated for four. Yeah. Best sound, best film editing, Best sound effects editing and best visual effects. Right. Again, right. this is prior to the CGI era. Yeah, yeah. So so real special effects had to be used, right? Yeah. They actually had to blow shit up. With the exception of the, the green screen of Hans Gruber falling, which, by the way, by today's standards, you can tell that's a blue screen, right? You can tell oh, yeah. that he's not really falling off a building. Today's special effects, that would have looked a hell of a lot better. So yeah, I don't know. I it, it's a classic, man. It's a, a classic, and it's a Christmas classic. I watch it every year at Christmas. Do you watch it every year at Christmas? I don't know if I watch it every year, but just about, yeah. You know, I mean, and back when it was in the days of cable, I think it was on all the time. You know what I mean? So you want to hear my tradition every year now? I have a tradition <laughs> that I've developed over the last few years. So I set up a table in the living room, and I wrap everything. And I watched three movies. Every year is tradition. Are you ready? Yeah. Die Hard. Yeah. Lethal Weapon 1. Also a Christmas movie. <laughs> we'll argue about that some other time. <laughs> Takes place at Christmas. And Love Actually. That's okay. the one that's 
mostly Christmas and no action, but it's a fun Christmas movie. And those are the three movies I watch every year while I wrap presents overnight. Any holiday movie traditions for you? No, we used to do that when our kids were younger. Jesse and I would spend Christmas Eve after the family get-together. We'd get home late and then be up till 2 in the morning wrapping gifts or whatever. Just to go to the tree. Yeah, so times are changing. Kids are growing up and traditions are changing. So, yeah, yeah, no, but I I love it. So Merry Christmas, everybody. This has been a great show. We hope, you know, by the time you're listening to this, again, it's Christmas week. We hope you are safe, happy, and healthy. And, man, it's another good year. We're going in at 2024, dude. Yep. And I I would add, so we've mentioned some of the movies we want to touch on in 2024. Send us some ideas. What would you like to hear us discuss on the show? You know, we're hoping to do more than one one a month in the new year. So we're actually doing pretty good here at the end of 2023. We're getting out multiple episodes a month sometimes, and yeah, yeah, we're we're loving doing this. And if you want to keep it thematic, like I said, we're doing we did Christmas show, we did a Veterans Day show, we did a Halloween show, yeah, we're doing a Valentine's show. If you want us to do something for like, I don't know, St. Patrick's Day, St. Patrick's Day, Fourth of July, the fugitive for St. Patrick's Day. How about? Oh, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, think of the holidays. Think of you know yeah. what are some theme. What are some so themes we should adopt this year? Something thematic you want us to do? Send it to us. We'd love to hear it. Yeah, and and you tell me. This is the question I'm posing to listeners. Have I proven that Die Hard is a Christmas movie? And if not, I want your reasons why it is not. And they better not be the three that I mentioned because I debunked all three of those. <laughs> so give me something else. Why, why Die Hard's not a Christmas movie. Because I have a neighbor, here's one shout out I will give, Siri Mitchell, who lives a few houses down from me, is adamant Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. I'm giving her a shout out on my platform to let her know <laughs> officially she is wrong. And I've proved her wrong. Has she given you any reasons that you didn't discuss? Hatred and anger, mostly? <laughs> Just kidding, Siri. I love you. All right. So, anything else before we land this plane? No. I say good tidings to all and to all good night. Wow. Wow. That was that was my brother trying to be... I don't even know what the fuck you were trying to do there. That was weird. And it was some kind of Christmas send-off. I guess. You know, people are going to listen to this any time of the year when they go back and listen to some of these episodes. So, yeah. That's true. That's true. So, all right, have fun at the movies. Crack one open for us. And like I always like to say, uh, go support your local cinema and uh, go watch some movies. Yes. Well, that is a wrap on 2024. Uh, I really want to thank you for listening, for making it a great year for us. You can always reach out to us at cheers at silverscreenhappyhour.com. You can also find us on our socials, and if you'd like to send us a voice memo, jump on over at Instagram, and you can send us a voice message, and you might end up on our show. So my brother and I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a very safe and Happy New Year. So if you're going to keep drinking and watching, make sure you do it right and get a designated driver. 